Hello and welcome to another episode of Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm your host Mark, it is just me again. We are counting down now to Bethan's return in a couple of months or so. Uh, She's doing really, really well, she's missing all of you. And no, I have not disposed of her and buried her body in Epping Forest, as has been recently alleged uh, on our social media channels. She's very much alive and well, uh, really looking forward to coming back to the show. This week we head to Merseyside to explore a tragic case of gang warfare and murder which in the summer of 2007 shook Britain to its very core. This is a frustrating, heartbreaking story which will see us explore the consequences of a long-running feud between two violent rival street gangs. A feud which culminated in the tragic death of an innocent 11-year-old child. This story takes place in Croxteth, a housing estate in the suburbs of Liverpool. Liverpool is one of Britain's biggest, most historic, vibrant and characterful cities. Situated on the north-eastern coast of England, it is, like many large cities, a metropolis of two halves. Alongside the characterful, vibrant quarters, you will also find areas of poverty, deprivation and crime. In Liverpool's case, perhaps the most infamous and most problematic area falls under the L11 postcode, which encompasses the twin housing estates of Croxteth Park and Norris Green. And I really do just want to make it clear here, we're not saying all of Croxteth is problematic, or that Liverpool is a city that is particularly deprived. We, I, am saying that all major cities in the UK have their problems, and these problems are often concentrated around small areas or estates. But there are also great things about these areas too. There's often a really strong sense of community, for example. It's just that this is a true crime podcast, so we generally are drawn to the shitty corners of these estates or cities or whatever. So you're not going to get a true take on Croxteth from this episode. So hopefully that has set some context for you. Before we delve into today's case, let's just take a minute to thank our most recent Patreon supporters, because things are going to get a bit shitty from here on in, so we'll do the nice bit now. So huge thanks to the following people who have signed up to support us on Patreon over the past week. We have Lorna Spain, Jade Valley, Andrea Schilling, Lisa Rose, Ali Johnson, Lisa H92. And also the following people who have signed up to support us annually. If you do that, you get a 10% discount. So those people are Alison Bardo, Kathy Dowden, Candy Mull and Jessica Frankham. Thank you so much. If you want to join these trailblazers, then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. I also wanted to give a shout out to Charlie Gray. Uh, Charlie's partner, Jade Valley, got in touch and said that she and Charlie have been listening every night uh, to the show. Uh, Hopefully you've not been having nightmares as a result. So hello, Charlie. The Joneses were a close-knit, middle-class and well-respected family unit who lived in the nicer, more developed part of Croxteth in the summer of 2007. Steve and his wife Mel met in 1982 and they had two sons together. Their eldest son Owen was born in 1990 and their youngest boy Reese was born in 1995. Reese attended Broad Square Primary School on the Norris Green Housing Estate and was just weeks away from starting secondary school in the September of 2007. 
Reese's former teachers, classmates and neighbours all described him as a delightful little boy with a big personality. A funny, cheeky, happy and popular lad who was well loved by all who knew him. Like almost all the boys living on the Croxteth Park estate, Reese jones lived for football and he was a dedicated fan of Everton FC. Reese loved Everton so much that almost all of the photographs later released to the public had him in one of the club's famous royal blue shirts because, outside of school hours, he rarely wore anything else. Reese dreamt of becoming a professional football player just like his Everton idols, and he played for a local junior team called Fir Tree Boys Football Club. He was said to be exceptionally good at football and he displayed outstanding skill on the field and an immutable passion and love for the game. Many of Reese's friends believed he had a very promising football career ahead of him. Croxteth is made up of several different housing estates. The Joneses family lived in Croxteth Park, a relatively safe, middle-class and well-to-do suburb of the town. Other more deprived and less developed areas of Croxteth include the old Croxteth Estate and the Norris Green Estate. All of the aforementioned areas of Croxteth had experienced ongoing issues with delinquent activity and antisocial behaviour to varying degrees, but it's fair to say that the Joneses family home in Croxteth Park was far from the worst area affected. Old Croxteth and the Norris Green Estates, however, had a much more serious and ongoing problem. The biggest problem in Croxteth was the street gangs and delinquent youths that roamed the areas in large numbers, presenting the police with a range of challenges, such as the distribution of hard drugs, street robberies and antisocial behaviour. The most prominent and well-known of these gangs were the Croxteth Crew and the Norris Green Strand Gang. Both gangs had a fearsome reputation for violence and intimidation and the two factions did not get along with each other. The turf war between the two gangs has deep roots in Liverpool's history. It has been a well-established problem in Merseyside since the turn of the 20th century. Liverpool's coastal location on the UK shoreline has made it a long-established trade route, especially in the illegal narcotics trade. In the early 1980s, Liverpool was tagged by the media as Smack City after it experienced an explosion in organised crime and heroin use, especially within the city's more deprived areas. At the same time, several criminal gangs began developing into larger-scale drug cartels in the city, including the Liverpool Mafia, which was the first cartel of its kind to develop in the UK. As drugs became increasingly valuable, large distribution networks were created with direct links to major cocaine producers in South America, including the infamous Cali cartel in Colombia. Over time, several of Liverpool's most prominent gangsters became increasingly wealthy, including Colin Smigger-Smith, who had an estimated fortune of £200 million, and Curtis Cocky Warren, whose estimated wealth once saw him listed on the Sunday Times Rich List. Now, there is a brilliant book um, about the latter of these two. Uh, It's called Cocky, The Rise and Fall of Curtis Warren. I read it a few years ago, maybe even sort of seven, eight years ago. Um, but if you're after uh, some true crime with a slightly different flavour uh, that isn't all murder, then uh, that's a really good one to go to. It's a really detailed, deep dive into 
Liverpool's crime scene, but in particular this guy Curtis Warren who who ruled it with an iron fist. So I definitely recommend that book. I can't remember who it's by. I think there are a number of authors, but uh, but yeah, do check it out if you're interested in in exploring this time period uh, further. That kind of eighties uh, and nineties when when the drugs gangs ruled. The high levels of violence in the city did come to a head in 1996 when, following the shooting of the infamous gangster David Ungi, six shootings occurred in seven days, prompting Merseyside police to become one of the first police forces in the country to openly carry weapons in the fight against gun crime. It has also been suggested that distribution networks for illicit drugs, guns and stolen goods within Ireland and the UK, and even allegedly some Mediterranean holiday resorts, are still to this day controlled by various Liverpool gangs. It is understood that a significant amount of the UK supply of illegal drugs still comes through Liverpool docks, so naturally there will always be rival criminal gangs competing to control this supply and to hold the most territory. The Croxteth crew and the Norris Green Strand Gang were two such rival gangs. Their long-running, violent and bitter feud has, on many occasions over the years, turned deadly. However, in the summer of 2007, the fallout from their violent dispute would have devastating consequences. In the early evening of the 22nd of August in 2007, 11-year-old Rhys Jones went to a midweek pre-season football training session with his fellow Fir Tree Boys teammates. After the session, Rhys gathered up his things and left in a hurry, eager to get home and catch the start of a highly anticipated England versus Germany football match that was to be shown on the TV later that evening. Reese's football coach, Steve Gagan, saw Reese walk past him as he packed up the football gear into his car that evening. Gagan offered to drive Reese home as his house was on the way. However, Reese politely declined the offer, insisting that he was happy to walk home instead. On the short, straightforward seven minute walk home, Reese followed his usual route, which was to cross through the Fir Tree pub car park just 500 yards from his family home. Rhys had done this walk countless times in the past. He was a young, innocent child just going about his life. He was not part of a gang, he wasn't involved in any illegal activity, and he had no reason to feel afraid in that moment. It was August, it was sunny and light, and he was close to home. However, through nothing more than sheer bad luck, Rhys was about to find himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, and this unfortunate coincidence would have devastating consequences. Before we go there, let's hear from today's show sponsor. At almost the same time as Rhys Jones was walking into the car park, a hooded youth on a bicycle approached the scene from the rear of the Fir Tree pub. This dark figure took up his position on the grass in front of the fence running alongside the path on the far side of the car park. He then pulled out a Smith and Wesson handgun, held it out at arm's length and fired three shots in quick succession. In the CCTV footage, a startled Reese can be seen turning his head suddenly after hearing the first shot ring out. It is unlikely that he would have had time to realise what was happening before the man on the bike fired a further two shots. The second bullet that was fired struck Reese in the back, just above his left shoulder blade. The bullet exited his body via the front right side of his neck. 
Badly wounded, Reese fell to the ground and managed to stay awake for a few moments as blood pooled on the floor, but he quickly lost consciousness. Coincidentally, it was Reese's football coach, Steve Gagan, who we met earlier, who first spotted Reese lying wounded on the ground as he drove past the pub. After calling for the police and ambulance, Gagan also sent word to Reese's mother, Melanie, who frantically raced to the scene when she heard that her youngest son had been shot. By that point, a concerned crowd had gathered to try and help, but Reese had already lost consciousness and was lying in a pool of his own blood. Despite the best efforts of Reese's mother and other members of the public who tried desperately to administer life-saving first aid, the gunshot injury that Reese had sustained proved to be fatal. Reese Jones, the kind and innocent schoolboy who loved football and was adored by his teachers, friends and family, never regained consciousness. He died in his mother's arms in that pub car park. He was 11 years old. News of Reese's murder swept across the country and it was met by an outpouring of widespread disbelief and sadness. Local radio station Radio City dedicated its programming on the night of the incident to calling for an amnesty and they also appealed for any potential witnesses to come forward and for the residents of Liverpool to call for an open discussion on the city's issues with gun crime. More than anything else though, there was one underlying question that plagued everybody's minds that night and since and that question is, why? Why would anyone target Reese, an innocent 11-year-old child who had no enemies and just wanted to play football? In the immediate aftermath of the young boy's murder, police mobilised to hunt down the killer. A task force was established and more than 300 officers were assigned to assist with the investigation, making it one of Merseyside Police's largest ever manhunts at the time. Naturally, the intense media interest in Reese's murder only added weight to the already immense pressure that the police were under to bring the gunman to account. Almost from the get-go, the lead investigators began working on the theory that the shooting was gang-related and that Reese was killed accidentally, either as a result of being mistaken for someone else or because he was simply caught in the crossfire in the wrong place at the wrong time. Officers went door to door searching for witnesses, clues, CCTV footage, anything that could help them to identify the hooded killer who rode a bicycle. The police also appealed for members of the public to come forward with any information they may have. Thanks to CCTV, police were able to closely trace the killer's movements immediately after the shooting. The killer had ridden his bike all the way across town and returned to the old Croxteth estate. He had his face covered by a hood and a snood and the police were unable to positively identify him on CCTV. However, they were able to get a good look at the bike itself and they immediately set out to find it. The hope was that they could link the bike back to the killer and then they could place him at the scene. On the 19th of September, just four weeks after the murder of Reese, his parents Steve and Melanie Jones made a fresh appeal for witnesses to come forward. A week later, the murder was reconstructed for an episode of Crime Watch, which aired on the 26th of September. In the episode, Melanie Jones appealed directly to the murderer's mother to do the right thing and turn her son in, adding, Someone knows who's done this and I know people must be frightened, but they've got to think that they can't leave the killer out there. 
It could be their son, it could be their brother next time, because it will happen again. If he's not caught, this will happen again. Melanie Jones was right, many Croxteth residents did know who had shot Reese, and the writing was, quite literally, on the wall from the very beginning. The police were unable to dismiss the recurring theme that soon became very apparent in their investigation. One name just kept coming up. In the days and weeks after the murder, the same name was being banded around on various social media sites and even being scrawled in graffiti on bridges, walls and buildings all around Croxteth. After the case was featured on Crime Watch, 12 people called in to provide credible information to the police. Every single one of them provided the same name, that of 16-year-old Sean Mercer. Mercer, who lived with his mother on the old Croxteth estate, was a prominent figure in the Croxteth Crew Street gang, and he was also known to be a violent drug-dealing thug who was both feared and despised by countless residents in the town. Mercer had a string of previous convictions for mostly minor crimes and was well known to the police as both a troublemaker and a gang member. Following the overwhelming amount of tip-offs that all pointed to Mercer, police arrested him and brought him in for questioning. Two bicycles were also seized from his house for examination, but neither turned out to be the bike that was used in the murder. Mercer initially denied all involvement in the murder of Rhys Jones and he gave the police a pre-prepared statement. In it he provided his alibi and denied that he had access to any other bicycles other than the ones that were found in his house at the time of his arrest. Sean Mercer's mother Jeanette was also present at the interview and she vouched for her son's alibi insisting that he was not involved in any way. Mercer was then made to participate in an identification parade before five eyewitnesses who had seen the masked gunman who shot Reese. However, none of the witnesses were able to positively identify him as a shooter. Don't forget, his face was mostly covered at the time. In the absence of any solid evidence to link Mercer to the killing of Reese, the frustrated police were forced to release him without charge. However, their investigation into his involvement did continue. Weeks passed without any real progress or further arrests being made. Not long after, however, the police got the breakthrough they had been waiting for. After receiving a credible tip-off, a search warrant was executed at an address in Old Croxteth of a minor who can only be legally referred to here as Boy X. In the loft of the house of Boy X, police found the Smith and Wesson revolver that they were looking for and they had little doubt that they had located the murder weapon that had taken Reese Jones's life. This was later confirmed by forensic analysis, when the gun residue found on the gun barrel was proven beyond doubt to be a perfect match to the residue that had been taken from Reese's football shirt. Boy X was not a member of the Crocs death crew, but he was certainly associated with them. He was arrested and interviewed and after several hours of intense interrogation, he broke and he agreed to tell the police everything he knew. Desperate and under intense pressure to secure a conviction, the police took the unusual and exceedingly rare step to file an application to the CPS in order to grant Boy X complete immunity from prosecution in exchange for his full and unconditional statement of events. The Attorney General of the Crown Prosecution Services accepted the application and Boy X agreed to the deal. 
His testimony is without a doubt what permanently turned the tide in the police's favour and subsequently secured Sean Mercer's conviction. The police's initial theory proved to be accurate. Mercer had indeed gone to the fir tree pub carrying a loaded gun with the full intention of killing someone. The true target of Mercer's gun was a Norris Greenstrand gang member named Wayne Brady, who had been spotted by members of the Croxdeath crew trespassing, I use that word in adverted commas, on their territory as he went to allegedly buy a bike from a friend. At the same time young Reese was walking across the car park, Sean Mercer was taking aim at Wayne Brady. Tragically though, Reese had unknowingly wandered directly into Mercer's line of fire. Reese had fallen to the ground immediately after being shot, and Mercer without a doubt saw this happen. However, he fired a total of three shots. This meant that, despite knowing full well that he had just shot an innocent child, he was undeterred and still callously made another attempt to hit his intended target, before fleeing the scene with zero regard for Reese's life. This told the police everything they needed to know about the kind of individual that they were dealing with. According to Boy X's testimony, after the shooting, Mercer fled and immediately set about distancing himself from Reese's death. He went to a 15-year-old boy's house who, due to his age, can only legally be referred to here as Boy M. Boy M was not a member of the Croxdeath crew, but he had been involved in a lot of their activities previously. He had learning difficulties and was considered impressionable and vulnerable and he happened to live the closest to the scene of the shooting. It's believed therefore that Mercer chose to go to Boy M's house for help. Once there, Mercer called Boy X on his mobile and demanded that he came to Boy M's house immediately. Boy X did as he was told. He, like many others, was terrified of saying no to the Croxdeath crew's demands. When Boy X got to the house, he was confronted by Mercer and several of his fellow gang members, who ordered him to take the gun away and hide it. Intimidated and scared, Boy X took the gun back to his house and he hid it in the garden shed, eventually moving it to his loft. As the evidence against Sean Mercer began to stack up, the police had their second breakthrough. A member of the public came forward and claimed to have found an abandoned bike, missing both of its wheels, which turned out to be the exact same make and model that they had been searching for. Further forensic analysis on the bike established that it was covered with Mercer's DNA. This was the final nail in Sean Mercer's coffin. On the 15th of April in 2008, Sean Mercer was once again arrested, only this time he was charged with the murder of Rhys Jones. He was refused bail and remanded in custody. However, the police were not just after Sean Mercer, they were also out to get Mercer's entire crew. Anyone who advised, aided or abetted him or helped him to clean up after his actions in any way whatsoever were all guilty of assisting an offender and potentially being an accessory to commit murder. The Croxdeath crew closed ranks in the immediate aftermath of the shooting and prominent members of the gang banded together to cover up Mercer's crime. A deep examination of Mercer's phone record showed that 27-year-old Melvin Coy, a member of the Croxdeath crew, had made a phone call to Sean Mercer at around 6.40 on the night of Reese's shooting. It was later determined that the call was made to inform Mercer that his intended targets were present at the Fir Tree pub. 
Coy also later drove Mercer to an abandoned lockup on an industrial estate on the night of the shooting and helped him to burn his clothes and douse himself with petrol in order to destroy any forensic evidence. Further investigation and questioning of several members of the Crocs death crew led the police to make further arrests of those linked to the crime. 24-year-old Gary Kays was charged with being an accessory. Just like Melvin Coy, he was also found to have made a call to Mercer just minutes before the shooting to confirm that the target was still in the car park. 19-year-old James Yates helped Mercer to dispose of his clothes, bike and the gun and 16-year-old Nathan Quinn attended Boyem's house shortly after Mercer arrived, allegedly to help Mercer cover his tracks and to get rid of vital evidence. 16-year-old Dean Kelly also attended Boyem's house after the shooting and provided Mercer with an alibi to give to the police. Several of the gang members' parents, including the mother of Sean Mercer, were also found to be involved in the subsequent attempted cover-up and all were arrested and charged with assisting a murderer. After his arrest, Sean Mercer continued to deny all knowledge of Reese's murder and refused to answer any further questions. On the 2nd of October in 2008, almost 14 months after Reese's murder, Sean Mercer, along with his six accomplices, was tried in Liverpool Crown Court for the murder of Reese Jones. Observers in the courtroom reported on Mercer's despicable behaviour. He was seen to be laughing and joking in the dock, refusing to answer any questions while sneering at Reese's friends and family. Needless to say, owing to the mountain of overwhelming evidence against him, Sean Mercer was found guilty of the murder of Reese Jones, and he showed absolutely no remorse or emotion as the judge sentenced him to serve a minimum of 22 years in prison. He will not be considered for parole until he is 40 years old. James Yates, Nathan Quinn, Melvin Coy, Dean Kelly and Gary Kays and Boy M were all found guilty of assisting Mercer. Don't forget Boy X had cut a deal so he wasn't tried for any crime. Yates was sentenced to seven years, Dean Kelly to four years and Nathan Quinn to two years. Boy M was sentenced to a two-year supervision order. Parents of the gang members who assisted the gang in their efforts to cover up the murder, including Mercer's mother and the parents of Yates, were later tried and convicted of perverting the course of justice. In 2009, James Yates had his sentence increased from seven years to 12 years following a referral to the Court of Appeal. They said that the original sentence was just too lenient. In reaction to the sentences, Reese's mother, Mel Jones, told the media, We got justice for Reese because, as sentencing goes, Sean Mercer was given the maximum that he could get. In the eyes of the law, he got justice, but I personally feel that life should mean life. Mercer should spend the rest of his life in jail. Reese Jones was buried in a private ceremony on the 6th of September in 2007, following a funeral service at Liverpool Cathedral, which was attended by more than 2,500 people. His family issued a public invitation for well-wishers to attend the service, where mourners were requested to wear bright clothes or football strips in Reese's honour. During the service, Reese's dad Steve Jones read a poem he had written for his son, and the legendary former Everton footballer Alan Stubbs read from the Bible. Not long afterwards, the Reese Jones Memorial Fund raised money to fund a new community centre, close to where Reese Jones had died. 
The Reese jones Community Centre on Langley Close, Croxteth Park, opened on the 31st of August in 2013. If you're interested in hearing more about this case, there is an excellent four-part ITV dramatisation of Reese's murder and of the subsequent police investigation. Uh, I think it's just come onto Netflix, so um, do check that out. I know that it was made in collaboration with Reese's family and it's very accurate, so I can't recommend that highly enough, although it is an absolutely harrowing watch. Thank you for listening uh, to this episode. I know it's um, it's always really, really tough when we cover the murder of a child and all child murders are senseless, but this one even more so given that Reese was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It really hammers home that we never know what's around the corner. Thank you for listening. I know, as I said, it was a tough one. Uh, I'll be back next week with something else. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to check out our sponsor. That's drinktrip.com. Use code red at checkout to get 15% off and free shipping. Uh, you can also find us on Patreon. So head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And we're on all of the social media platforms as well, including YouTube. And finally, don't forget to leave us a review if you've not done so already. In the meantime, then, I uh, I will catch you on social media in the next few days, I'm sure. And I will see you uh, for another episode next Wednesday. Bye. <laughs>